Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Mackenzie campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. My kids love to take my phone and to put it on the camera function and take pictures of everything that's happening in their lives. And so if you look in my album on my phone, you will find many pictures of the tiles in our house. You will find a lot of pictures of the ceiling and you'll also find a lot of pictures of me definitely not ready to have my photo taken, uh, doing random things like sitting on the couch, watching TV and cooking dinner because my kids absolutely love taking pictures. And all of us, at some point, have done the same thing. We've got a camera and we've taken a picture. And as we've done that, we've captured a moment in time. Whether it's a special occasion, whether it might be a holiday, we've captured that moment. And some of the time we put it on our wall Maybe we put it in an album, maybe we save it on our phone so that we can look at that moment. We can look back on that time that we had. And as we do that, we remember maybe who was with us in that moment. We remember the things that we were feeling in that moment. Maybe who else was surrounding us in that moment. And I know for me as all of you as well, in our lifetime, the development of how we have taken a picture has definitely uh, evolved. I grew up, as I'm sure a lot of you did, with rolls of film, which really was the greatest lesson in delayed gratification. Because if life was exciting, it might be maybe two or three weeks before you finish that roll of film and you got to see it. But if life was, you know, a little bit boring, not much happening, it could be six months or a year before you got to see those photos. Not to mention uh, when you kind of lost that roll of film and then finally you find it, you get it developed, you're like, oh, what was, what was this film all about? But then we've moved to the digital camera, you know, which really, after rolls of film, was pretty amazing. You could see a picture instantly after you took it. And you could delete all the terrible ones and not have to spend like $24 developing a roll of film of blanks. But more recently, our phones have become our cameras. And we take pictures and we can instantly see them, but we can then crop them and filter them and instantly share them with others. But long before we captured moments on our phones and shared it on Instagram, long before we had digital cameras and then saved those pictures on our computers, and even long before rolls of film that we would take to get developed and then maybe put in an album, Artists would see, maybe read about, or imagine moments in time, and they would capture these moments in their artwork. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at a series called Jesus in the Picture. And we're going to be looking at some of the moments from the Gospels that have been captured by a variety of artists. And as we focus on these moments in Scripture, we will see that when Jesus 
comes into the picture, when Jesus steps into the events of these people's lives, his presence changes everything. His presence actually changes the whole picture. He brings peace to the anxious. He embraces the lonely. He the condemned are set free and the downcast receive new hope. And as we invite Jesus into our own stories, into our current realities, into our pictures, we will find that his presence will minister to our hearts and change our pictures and potentially change our stories. Sometime in the 1700s, Sebastiano Ricci, an Italian artist, he captured a moment in time from the scriptures. And this artwork that you can see on the screen is his attempt to capture the moment that we're gonna read in John 8 this morning. And it's this moment of a woman caught in adultery. And I want us to actually do something a little bit different this morning as we read this passage. I invite you uh, in a moment to, if you feel comfortable, close your eyes and try and actually capture this moment for yourself. I want us to actually try and picture this scene unfolding before our eyes. Imagine that you are one of those people in the crowd. What emotions are you feeling? What is it that you see? What are the noises that you can hear around you? But to help us kind of immerse ourselves in this passage, I wanna just help us get an idea of what is happening in this scene. And so John 7 actually tells us, it says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So Jesus stands up on the last day of this festival and he makes this claim that he is the person that will satisfy people's thirst. And while this seems like a very obscure thing from our perspective that Jesus would say this, for those who surround him in the temple, they know that this claim mirrors prophecies that are from the book of Isaiah about the coming Messiah. And so they're probably standing there witnessing Jesus say these things and either thinking he's insane, he's heretical. Some may be thinking maybe he is who he says he is. But naturally, this is all causing a stir amongst those in the temple. And in the verses following, we read that the crowd who heard this, the crowd who witnessed Jesus make this claim, they say they were divided and they were confused. And because of all of this and what Jesus had said, the Jewish leaders, they actually wanted to seize Jesus, but they still didn't have enough evidence to do so. And this is the point that we enter into the story in the middle of this tension. And although this is a story about a woman who is caught in adultery, that is what's playing out in front of us. There's also this bigger narrative going on as well. And so imagine, You've just witnessed Jesus stand up and make this outrageous claim. 
But it's now the following day, it's early in the morning, and there's others starting to gather in the temple. And again, this man, Jesus, he shows up. And so, instead of focusing on the scripture today with our eyes, I'd love you, if you feel comfortable, to close your eyes, whether you're here in person or online at home. I'd love you to close your eyes and imagine what's happening in this moment. John 8, 2 says, At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And with your eyes still closed, I want you to think about what you may have just witnessed. This woman dragged before the crowd, the crowd in which you are a member of, you are standing there, maybe you can feel the shoulders of the person next to you and just a few meters in front of you is this woman with her sinful act exposed. What she thought was private has now been brought before the crowd for all to see, for all to judge. What's the look on her face? What's the look on her face as those who dragged her before Jesus say she is to be stoned? What are those around you saying in response to that? Are there gasps of shock or are there cries of approval? But in the midst of this picture stands Jesus, the one who they're really hoping to expose. 
What are emotions are on his face? Does he have a look of shock? Is there a look of confusion? Or is his face filled with compassion? And then he bends down. Is this a quick and reactive or is it perfectly timed and considered? And then all of a sudden, this crowded temple, which was hustling and bustling with noise, is almost instantly stripped bare. And the only people that remain are this woman and Jesus. And you can open your eyes now if you've got them closed. I don't know what picture formed in your mind. We can only really just begin to imagine how this woman must have felt. This feeling of being exposed, this feeling of shame, maybe worthlessness, maybe even regret as she stands humiliated before this crowd. And I don't know if you have ever experienced a similar feeling. Standing before someone with your insecurities, with your indiscretions, with your poor choices on display for that person to see. It's not a nice feeling, it's a very raw feeling and it can be incredibly painful. But what we see in this moment is that as Jesus steps in to this woman's picture, he does something that no one expects. And this morning, I just wanna unpack this passage a little more to help us see the significance of this woman's interaction with Jesus. And my hope and my prayer is that as we do that this morning, we will see the power that Jesus' presence can have in our own stories in our own lives, in the moments that we find ourselves in. And so we're gonna kind of skim over the passage that we have just read. Verse two, it says, at dawn he appeared again in the temple where all the people were gathered around him. You know, Jesus is coming back to the temple and as he does so, in good rabbinic style, he kind of starts teaching, he sits down, which shows his authority as a teacher. And it's at this point where the crowd is gathered, where there's people around Jesus, that the Pharisees decide to make their move. And verse three talks that the teachers of the law, they bring in this woman caught in adultery. They make her stand before Jesus. And they say, you know, in the law, Moses says we should stone such a woman. But then it tells us what the Pharisees are doing. They're trying to use this to trap Jesus in order to accuse him. So not only is this woman being publicly shamed for what she has done, she is also being used by the Pharisees to make a point. And what is this point that the Pharisees are trying to make? And we're not gonna go into a biology lesson uh, here, but for this adulterous act to have happened, at least how many people had to be involved? Two. But how many people are being brought before Jesus? It's just one. 
And this stoning law that the Pharisees are referring to comes from Deuteronomy 22, which outlines what requires death, what acts require death, what acts require stoning. And in either situation, both the man and the woman are to be brought forward. So the Pharisees are now actually violating the law while trying to get Jesus to enforce the law. And this inconsistency would suggest that they aren't trying to preserve the law, but they are actually trying to trap and publicly humiliate Jesus. And in the process, they're also publicly humiliating this woman. And so we see this tension building. How is Jesus gonna respond? What is he gonna do? And Kenneth Bailey, in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, he kind of illustrates the dichotomy of what is going on. And he writes this, it's a bit of a long quote, but he says it much better than I would. The Pharisees assumed that Jesus had two options. On the one hand, he could say, yes, let's stone her. Such a ruling would have caused an outcry and triggered enough commotion that Jesus would surely have been arrested even if the violence against the girl had not begun. John records that the Romans had denied the Jews the right to put anyone to death. Jesus' other option was to say something like, gentlemen, we know what the law of Moses requires, but the realities of the political world in which we live cannot be avoided. Just look around you. Yes, we long for the day of liberation from Rome, after which we will be able to obey the law of Moses in a strict fashion. But in the interim, we are obliged to be patient and make allowances. If he had given such a speech, his opponents would have accused him of cowardice. Was he against the law of Moses? Or was he simply unwilling to pay a price to pursue the national cause? In short, if he decided to carry out the law of Moses, he will be arrested. If he opts to set it aside, he will be discredited. What is it going to be, Moses or Rome? Either way, he loses and his opponents win. And so we see Jesus caught in this tension. What will he do? And what he does defies everyone's expectations. It says Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And this is seemingly an insignificant, even bizarre act, but it is incredibly powerful. We may think, you know, what is it that Jesus is writing as he's on the ground? And scholars have debated this for many, many years. Some say he was writing the names of those in the crowd. Others say he was writing the sins of those in the crowd. But the reality is we will never know. But what is interesting is that according to Jewish law, the day after a major feast, which we realize from the scripture earlier, this is the day following this feast, the Sabbath was observed. And so this following day would be classed as a Sabbath, a day where there was no work allowed. But the rabbis defined writing as work. But because there had been this disagreement of, well, what actually constitutes writing, there had been some clarification as to what writing had meant. And it had been defined as a, uh, as a permanent mark on something. So maybe like ink on papyrus. But writing with one's finger in say something like the dust 
Well, that was actually permissible because it didn't leave a lasting mark. And so by simply bending down and writing in the dust with his finger, Jesus, without saying anything, is firstly way ahead of his time because uh, if you haven't seen the TikTok and kind of internet sensation about the tell me without telling me challenge, your silence makes me think you haven't. But I asked my mum this the other day if she had heard of it and she said, I know exactly what you're talking about, which surprised me. Um, But she said, it's like, tell me you went to school in the 1960s without telling me you went to school in the 1960s. And then there would be these clips of things that happened in the schools in the 1960s. I don't know, because I didn't go um, to school in the 1960s. But if it was me, I might say, I might be on the challenge, tell me you're a mum without telling me you're a mum. And I would pan my house with all of the clothes that are unfolded, all of the toys that are strewn. Even you might see jam smeared on the walls. Or I might even show you that time that I rocked up to a play date and I accidentally set on an M&M in the wrong place. You know, tell me without telling me, you're a mum. And Jesus, by simply bending down and riding in the dust, Jesus is telling the Pharisees that he is a follower of the law without actually telling them he is a follower of the law. He lets the Pharisees know that he is fully aware of the law and he is also aware of the current interpretation of the law. And so verse seven, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone. And at this, the crowd begins to dissipate. The older ones first, because that's what would happen in that culture until it is just Jesus and this woman standing there. And see, for the Pharisees, they had waited for the moment where there was a crowd surrounding. There was power in the crowd for the Pharisees. It meant that there were many more witnesses to what Jesus would do in this moment. It also meant that they weren't 100% accountable to their actions when there were so many people surrounding. But Jesus' words dissipates the crowd until it is just the woman and Jesus left standing there. And the crowd was gone. And you might think, well, maybe Jesus does this so he can actually bring shame and judgment on this woman without humiliating her in front of the crowd. I mean, Jesus might do that. Jesus was full of compassion and he may not have actually wanted to call her out in front of the crowd. And he had every right to call her out. Yet we read that Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and live your life of sin. Jesus doesn't tell her where she's gone wrong. He doesn't give her a stone talking to and he doesn't even bring judgment on her. He just simply asks her two questions. And then he ever so graciously says, I don't condemn you, but go and leave your life of sin. When the world wants to heap shame and condemnation and judgment upon us, Jesus 
He doesn't excuse our sin. He doesn't turn a blind eye to our sin. He doesn't downplay our sin. Sin is sin and he can't stand it. But we see here in this moment that instead of bringing her death, which is what her sin deserves, he offers her life. And whatever your relationship with shame is this morning, Jesus offers you life instead of death. He offers you freedom instead of condemnation. And I don't know your story, but I'd say that all of us have things in our lives that we wish people didn't know about us, especially as we sit here in church. You know, the things that we wish we hadn't said, whether it was the gossip or the lies or the hurtful words that we know brought destruction to relationships. Maybe it's the choices that we've made to act on that feeling of lust which has damaged our marriage. Maybe the time when we had one too many drinks that caused us to do something that maybe we wouldn't have done otherwise. The addictions and behaviors that we have that we think, you know, as a follower of Jesus, should, should I be doing this? Whether it's the content that we view on our phones or our computers, the angry outbursts that we have that result in violence to others, maybe even the swearing and the blasphemy that just seems to kind of roll out of our mouths. I just wanna make a note here that for many of us, we may also feel shame, not because of the choices that we have made or the things that we have done, but we actually, actually experience shame because of what's been done to us. And although Jesus' offer of freedom and offer of life is the same regardless, what we're talking about this morning focuses specifically on someone who has made a choice that's gone against the law that the Jews lived by. And so while I believe that Jesus offer, offers us the same freedom from our past, whether our shame comes from what's been done to us or what we have chosen to do, where I wanna actually land this this morning focuses on the shame that we feel when we have chosen to go our own way. And this feeling of shame and condemnation that we may feel from those around us, or maybe we even feel it in our own conscious because of the things that we've done, that shame can actually be debilitating. There's nothing nice about feeling exposed or feeling judged. Yet we see in the scriptures that even the act of being caught which often we think is the beginning of the end. You know, if, if only someone knew, if only someone found out, that would mean the end of that relationship, that would mean the end of my ability to do this thing. We actually see for this woman, it's not the end. It's actually the beginning of this new life for this woman. When this woman enters the presence of Jesus, when Jesus steps into this woman's picture, when she is brought before Jesus rather than some other person, Jesus offers her life instead of death. If she was brought before anyone else, they may have stoned her. But when Jesus comes into the picture, the whole picture changes. Jesus offers us life instead of death, and he offers us freedom instead of condemnation. When he comes into the picture, 
He doesn't excuse our sin. He doesn't turn a blind eye to our choices. And in no way does he downplay the consequences of us choosing our own way. Sin is sin. God can't stand it. His very nature means he actually can't interact with it. But instead of offering us death, which is what our sin deserves, he offers us life and freedom from our sin. Romans 8 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Because of Jesus, we can live a life free of shame, free of condemnation. And I believe that Jesus would say the same words to us that he says to the woman caught in adultery. I don't condemn you but go and leave your life of sin. And I actually think this is the point where we come unstuck. And it's the point where the devil gets a foothold. Jesus doesn't condemn, but he says to the woman, leave your life of sin. Accepting freedom, although not always easy, is sometimes easier than actually leaving our life of sin. And the devil knows this, so he tries to keep us in this place. He tries to trick us and make us feel like we can't live in freedom, like we don't deserve to live in freedom, and we deserve to be enslaved to sin and to shame. And we see this similar wrestle that Paul does as he writes in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, we are those who have died to sin, How can we live in it any longer? And the question I wanna leave all of us with this morning is, what will you do with your freedom? Regardless of what this woman will do next, Jesus offers her life. He offers her freedom. And the challenge for us is as we experience the freedom that Jesus offers, do we just return to the life the way we've been living? Or do we do as Jesus encourages us to do, try and leave our life of sin and try to live a life where we are putting God at the center? So each decision that we make, each word that we say, each action that we take is an attempt to honor Jesus. And this is the part where it can get really complicated because there's not always a black and white line when it comes to these things that often cause us to feel shame. Some of us uh, are looking for the clear boundaries and markers of, you know, what can I do as a Christian? What shouldn't I be doing as a Christian? Particularly in the areas of sexuality and relationships, even what we view and the, the content that we view online. We wanna know how much can I do before I cross the line? Can I still be a Christian if I choose to drink a lot? Can I still be a Christian and in my business decision, make a promise of this, but actually deliver something else because it's gonna work out better for me? Can I still be a Christian if I cheat on my partner or my spouse? What about if I blaspheme and swear a lot? So many questions, so many scenarios. We just sometimes wanna know where the line is. How far can I go and still be classed as a follower of Jesus? 
And although God's Word does speak directly to some of those issues, it is not always clear on a whole bunch of issues. But I actually believe Jesus would say the same thing to us as He says to this woman. Imagine you are standing before Jesus. Your life exposed. All of your choices on display, all the words that you have said, all the thoughts that have gone on in your head, things that you have tried to keep hidden from people. Yet Jesus sees them all and He doesn't shame you. He doesn't condemn you. He offers you life instead of death. He offers you freedom. But He says to you, go now and leave your life of sin. And the tension is, we all make mistakes. We all stuff up. And on this side of heaven, we will be in need of God's grace time and time again. Yet I believe that if we are serious about following Jesus, we need to ask ourselves the question, what are we doing with our freedom? Are you living your life the way that you want to? Trying to justify your actions by using the affirmation that our culture uses, that you do you. I'll do my thing over here, you do you, and that's okay. Or are you trying to honour God in every decision, every relationship, whether it's in public or in private, and do as Jesus says, are you trying to leave your life of sin? And I do get the irony in this, because right now you might be sitting here and the words that I have said, the examples that I've used are actually making you feel judged and condemned. But please know this is not my heart. My heart is that together, we would continue to grow more like Jesus. And we would let Jesus' words from Scripture transform our hearts and our lives. And I just wanna finish by reading the rest of the passage I read before from Romans 6. But this time I wanna read it from the message version. And Paul uh, starts, well, in the message translation says this. So what do we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realise we packed up and left there for good? That is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it is like the burial of Jesus. And when we are raised up out of the water, it is like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in our new grace-sovereign country. Would you pray with me? Loving Father, we thank You that You, God, are a holy God. And by definition, that means that You can't actually interact with sin. And God, we sit here this morning, whether in church or online, God, 
we know our life is full of sin, whether it's the lies that we've told, the choices that we've made, the half truths. And God, we are so thankful for Jesus, that Jesus would come and live a perfect life, die on a cross and be raised to life so that we can have our relationship restored with You. God, we thank You for that. And this morning we come before You and we say, help us. Help us to leave our old lives and help us to in every decision, in every word, in every thought, honour You. God, we ask Your Holy Spirit to come right now. We know it is here, but we welcome Your Holy Spirit here. And we ask that it would minister to our hearts and our lives this morning. God, may we walk out of here a little bit different, knowing God that You have set us free that we don't need to live in the shame and condemnation that maybe our choices or even other people's choices have made us feel. So God, we ask for more of your freedom this morning in our hearts and lives. We love you and we praise you. Amen. I'd ask you to stand with us. Stand today as we sing. I reckon there's actually two ways that we may need to respond this morning. The first is I've just read that passage about baptism. And I just believe that there might be some people here this morning who have made the decision to follow Jesus, but not yet been baptised. And I actually think there's something really significant from that passage about what we do in baptism. We die to our old life and we are raised to a new life in Christ. And I just believe that for some of you today, you need to make the decision that baptism is the next step. It's actually part of that journey to leaving your life of sin is actually publicly declaring before people that you have chosen to follow Jesus and you are dying to that old self and being raised to a new life in Christ. And if, you, if that's you this morning, I'm actually gonna ask the, the pastoral team and the prayer team to come down the front right now. So if you can, guys can come down. Brad, who's our discipleship pastor, is gonna be standing here with some towels. And if you feel like baptism is the next step for you, for you I ask you to come and have a chat with Brad about that this morning. But for the rest of us, I just believe, we're gonna sing this song that says, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. We know that the Holy Spirit is here, but there is something when we actually welcome His presence, it opens ourselves up to let Him do whatever He needs to do in our hearts and lives. And I just believe this morning, I just was listening to something this week that talked about this definition of freedom, how in our culture at the moment, we think of freedom is being able to do whatever I want to do. Yet in the biblical kind of understanding of freedom, freedom is actually about being freed to do whatever it is that God wants us to do. And I actually believe this morning there are people who feel 
like shame, condemnation, whether because of things that have been done to you or things that you have chosen to do yourself, you actually feel like you can't step in to doing what it is that God wants you to do because you haven't yet experienced that freedom. You might actually be living in the freedom that the world says, I just feel like I need to do whatever I need to do. Yet there's something I believe that as we come and God just ministers to us in this moment, He wants to break that understanding and give you freedom to do what it is that He is calling you to do. And so that if that resonates with you this morning, why don't you come down the front as we sing this song. Our prayer team would love to pray for you. Maybe you need to come and just kneel and be in the presence of Jesus. Like that woman, just be in that place with Jesus and know that when Jesus enters into the picture, He has the power to change our stories. And so this morning, we're gonna sing this song. I invite you, if that resonates, come down the front. If you're online and you'd love someone to pray with you, pray it, press that prayer request button. We have a team of people who would love to pray with you. If you wanna get baptised and you're online, make sure you fill out a Get Connected card and do that. If you're in baptised, you're in person, come down and chat to Brad. Uh, I just believe the Holy Spirit wants to do a work in our hearts this morning. Let's sing. Nothing worth more that will ever come close. Nothing can compare. You're our living hope. Your presence, Lord. I've
place this week, whether it's in our home, whether it's in our workplace, whether it's when we're driving in the car, Lord, may we be aware of Your presence with us, interacting with our stories and offering us freedom and life and peace and hope in the midst of what we're going through. God, we just thank You that Your Spirit is here right now ministering to our hearts. And God, I just pray that You would equip us with everything that we need to go and to live our lives honouring You in every thought, in every action, in every decision that we make. God, thank You for this time gathered together as Your church this morning. God, we praise You because You are good. We worship You because You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we love You. And this morning, we join together and we say, Amen. Amen. Thank You for joining us this morning in person, also online. If you're interested in the GMS experience for next year, you can chat to someone on your way out or go to our website for more information. And hopefully we will see you next week. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If you've made a decision to follow Christ, we would love to encourage you on your journey. Help us help you by going to gatewaybaptist.com.au and clicking on Get Connected.